Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin this morning with Alan Ruskin. He's the global head of G10 FX strategy at Deutsche Bank. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. Let's start with the news out of Spain, or out of northern Spain, I suppose I should say. Uh, what does this mean for, for the economy of the region more generally? There are a number of other places, not unlike Catalonia, that are probably watching what's, what's unfolding. They're watching this dynamic between uh, Spain and Catalonia. What are the lessons to be learned both politically and economically from what we're seeing happen there? Well, I think there's some danger that uh, what you have is uh, some resources get pulled out of Catalonia uh, to other regions in Spain. And, uh, you know, net-net, those other regions probably benefit to some degree. Uh, Catalonia loses out. Um, The uncertainty overall probably means that uh, Spain uh, tends to lose out to some extent. And I think you're seeing that in some of the downward revisions to growth. But for the moment, at least, I think, you know, those downward revisions are, are quite modest. Does it say anything to you about the uh, the future of the integrity of uh, the European uh, experiment? Does it give you concern about where things might be headed? Yeah, I think uh, there's a wider uh, problem here as such. If, uh, you know, s- some smaller regions can uh, pull apart and uh, you can actually see independence from, from in regional uh, elements in Spain, you would think that could happen anywhere. And I think it's indicative of what you're seeing in, in, in a way worldwide, which is if these smaller regions can fall under a defense umbrella and can adopt a currency as such, a stable currency, then why not? Uh, have some independence in a sense, as I think. So, you know, the issue you have here is it must be made clear to some extent that there are costs to independence as well. Otherwise, I think you're going to see more of this rather than less of it. Explain to us why we're not seeing wilder swings in the euro as a result of this, uh, as a result of, uh, you know, what's been a a many weeks long ordeal here again in in northern Spain. Well, I think we've just, you know, come off the French election where I think there was a genuine perception that this was an existential crisis. This is a possibility that you'd have a government that would actually want to pull out of the euro. Um, I think, on the contrary, over here, it's very, very likely that even if uh, you had uh, the Catalonia independence, they would still be adopting the euro. I just can't quite see them having their own independent central bank as such. And I think in that sense, you don't have any of these concerns about uh, you know, past contracts effectively and will they be fulfilled, etc. So it's not perceived as an existential threat in a direct sense. Uh, there will be issues that relate to Spanish debt and who pays for Spanish debt, etc. And that would be more problematic, I think, in the next downturn. But I don't think that's as problematic or as, you know, as, as big an issue as if people feel that uh, the contracts are not going to be honored because there's a different currency at play. What was uh, your takeaway or what were your takeaways from the uh, the annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank uh, last week, uh, the, the outlook that was released by the IMF, uh, slightly more optimistic than it had been projecting more growth uh, in the global economy. Of course, there's the general cognizance of the fact that uh, we have low inflation globally uh, as well. What did you take away from the, the conversation of those, uh, those leaders of, of finance and the economy gathered in Washington last week? Well, I think it's a quiet optimism, mm. but 
beneath that, of course, you always have to worry, right? I think these guys are, to some extent, paid to worry and paid uh, to look out for what could be the next crisis. Now, we've really gone through a period of unbelievable stability in global growth. I mean, we've, you know, if you look at, I think it's the IMF uh, global growth data, uh, we've tracked between roughly about 3 and 3.2% for five years mm-hmm. through 2016. That's unbelievable in terms of the lack of volatility as such. And it's uh, you know, a great performance from a global growth standpoint, but it's okay as such. And now I think the perception is we're going to err on the top side of that, but that maybe there's other issues lurking in the winds as, as such. So I think that, you know, that's, that's, I think, what concerns central bankers. Good morning, Alan Ruskin with us. I'm sorry, I just got in. I, I Can I just say, David, as a starting point, I love 4 and 5 p.m. baseball starts. Yeah, well, it wrapped up at what, 8.30, 8.45? Yeah, it's great. I mean, the kids, children actually watch the baseball game. How extraordinary. And surveillance hosts as well. Yeah, is, is, is that <laughs> lots to talk about today. Alan Ruskin with us with Deutsche Bank. Uh, and uh, I, I guess one place we can start, Alan, uh, lovely to have you here through the half hour, it's just a dollar call. Mm-hmm. It was the great missed call of the summer. Why was that? Why did why was everybody long the dollar consensus long dollar? Oops, it went the other way. Well, I think we've been on a trend for a while there, Tom, and uh, it's very difficult to call turning points. And mm-hmm. part of the turning point, I think, came through two big sources. One was the Trump reflation trade. Uh, which had given the dollar a boost right at the end of last year. That that one flagged and flagged quite quite heavily as such. And then it came at the same time as the French elections tended to remove European political uncertainty to some extent. So that put the bid on euro. And put a bid on euro. And then I think you saw a lot of investors feel, wait a minute, we're really underweight mm-hmm. euros. And you've had an asset allocation story right. as well into yeah. euros. And then you, you and I agree that technical analysis can keep you out of trouble. You may not make any money with it, but it's good at, at not losing money. We've had a, I guess we've had a breakthrough, the downtrend. But as you mentioned earlier, there's a fragility to this dollar rally. It's not for real, is it? Yes, I think as, uh, a, a problem we have right now in the currency world is that we love divergence, right? So we love the idea that uh, um, the Fed's going to tighten and some other central bank's going to ease. That's a relatively easy trade. But right now, actually, the euro looks okay, as I mentioned earlier. I think it's uh, under asset allocation, uh, long-term asset allocation, and that I think will be helpful for the euro going forward. And the European Central Bank is tightening, albeit it's really effectively just tapering its past QE as such. But we are in a world now where central banks in general are thinking of tightening. So this is, we've got a horse race here in the go, yeah? But they're all running in the same direction, which makes it a little bit more confusing for us. How cheap is the, the yen at this point? Um, is, is there value in the yen as you see it right now? There's value on a long-term basis in so much as pretty much all our longer-term metrics suggest it's cheap by in the order of, say, 20%. So PPP, purchasing power parity indicator, suggests you know, the low 90s rather than you know, 112. So there's, there's a big difference there. And historically, when you do see divergences of over 20%, that does suggest you need to go in the opposite direction. It's time to buy yen. But I think that's a little too early. The the call's too early. Because I think right now, it's essentially been driven by US treasuries and the US tenure yield. Mm. Yeah, We we confuse that a little bit. We pretend we're playing dollar yen, yeah, but we're actually really trading the US tenure yield. And I think the US tenure yield on balance is going to move higher in yield. 
field. I want to ask you the money question. Just to explain here, strong yen means a yen of 112 goes down to 100 or 90 or whatever. It goes to a lower um, statistic. PPP. Can guys on the street make money off a of PPP analysis? I mean, this goes ages ago to Casal of 1918 and even before that. Can you make money on a PPP analysis or is that just two 60,000 feet? Um, yeah, no, it might be higher than it might be even more rarefied and to some extent in terms of trying to make money. Yeah. Because, look, I think you can, you're going to cross over PPP maybe once every five years or exactly. so. Exactly. But I think you do want to be very alert to extremes relative to PPP. And you're suggesting 20% is 20% extreme. is a decent demarcator okay. in terms of extremes okay. for all G10 currencies, actually. This is why we do surveillance, folks. You just had a clinic on what you do within the set of observations you have to make a setup to get to a trade, whether your trade is two days. I mean, Ruskin's trading over a two-hour period. But whether it's two hours or two days or two years, there's there's a mix here of things, and you got to be sure you're looking at something like PPP over the appropriate time frame and amplitude. Here endeth the lecture. Okay, Alan Reskin with Deutsche Bank. <laughs> we'll continue. David Gurrell will try to do something uh, less esoteric than that. David, I'll lead it off here. But first, Abby uh, sends in a really smart tweet uh-huh. about what do we mean when we mean long dollar? That's, that's a really, really smart question uh, in that with the dollar is the global currency. You can look at it versus many different pairs or you can look at it on a trade weighted basis. As well is taking trade-weighted, which can be like 10 countries or 27 countries, whatever it is, plus the euro. There are indexes that allow us to look at the dollar discreetly. The classic index is the DXY, which we quote, and there's a new index, a Bloomberg dollar index, which on your Bloomberg is BBDXY, which is actually really good math. So when we say long dollar, that's strong dollar. Uh, David, and is usually based off one of those blended indices that bring in all the different currency pairs. Very good. No one drove off the road no. while I said that? I hope not. Hit the snooze button. There it is. Uh, Alan, Al- Ruskin, Alan Ruskin dozed off. No, he's here uh, from Deutsche Bank, of course. And Alan, I wanted to ask, we just heard from Chris Kirkham about um, the parlor game about who's going to lead the Fed here. We're going to get a decision from the president, he says, by um, November the 3rd when he leaves on for this trip to Asia. Uh, how does the market price that in? We hear that John Taylor is in the lead this week. It was Kevin Warsh last week. There's still a lot of movement among the, the ranks of these five candidates the president has interviewed or is going to interview. I think he sits down with Janet Yellen, the Fed chair, uh, today. How is the market processing what may or may not happen here? David, it's very difficult for the market to process this because uh, we're seeing the uh, indicators of who's the favorite. Uh, there are things like predicted uh, is a one one example very, very flighty in terms of responding very much to the next headline as such. So if you took that at face value, say the market's expectations of who's going to be the next Fed uh, chair is just uh, flipping around. And uh, I think there's a sense that right now Powell is in the forefront. Uh, Yellen's certainly in the running Mm -hmm. and on the rise perhaps. And then I think... Beyond that, Kevin Walsh is perceived to be in decline and John Taylor is on the rise as well. But that is, you know, really based off the last few uh, Bloomberg headlines. There you go. <laughs> how much does it, does it matter for somebody dealing with currencies? Uh, how much does the, the appointment of a Fed chair matter in the near term? I think this, 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 this appointment matters a lot, yes. I think, you know, you've had a few 
changes which matter a lot. I think Volker coming in, actually Greenspan following Volker, those were potential shifts in regime, very relevant for you know today, Black Monday really, because that transition was part of the Black Monday story. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the handover from Greenspan to Bernanke and Bernanke to Yellen was much more benign, I think. I think the sense was that the frameworks would uh, essentially stay unchanged. It depends now who the next Fed chair is. If you do have someone like Taylor and if you have someone like Moore, Walsh or maybe uh, Cohn, um, then the prospect is that actually there's some regime change. If we do shift towards a more rules-based Fed, that's going to be extremely interesting. The market right now is taking that as a sign that in the short term, at least, the Fed would be more hawkish. Uh, in the long term, who knows? Um, I would say this, it's not that simple in terms of market reaction, because what will happen is if you get a more hawkish uh, pick for the Fed, the equity market will probably go down mm-hmm. to the point where bonds might even rally, really. So you've got to be careful here, in a sense. So, in fact, the yield curve in general is going to flatten on a more hawkish pick, and it's going to steepen, really, on a more dovish pick. And it's partly because the equity market will be the arbiter in terms of driving the bond market. We've spoken a few times since the, the last presidential election. I think each time I, I ask you how clear a sense you have of this administration's trade policy what have we learned this week? Uh, this fourth round of NAFTA negotiations taking place outside of Washington uh, ended with a press conference that I think you could safely say wasn't optimistic about where things are heading. We have a president still talking about terminating the NAFTA deal. Uh, how much does that weigh on, on the peso say? Um, it was weighing on the peso yeah. uh, over the last few weeks, absolutely. So it's, it's been a big deal. Uh, at the same time, I would say don't get caught up with uh, the short-term headlines. Each of these mm-hmm. iterations. You yeah. really yeah. don't have a deal until okay. you have a deal. I lost money last night betting on the Dodgers. The Cubs beat them. Haley Koufax told me to, to go long Dodgers, and I got crushed. Can I make it back on dollar peso? Is there a directional <laughs> Deutsche Bank way for me to make that trade back? That's not the one I would uh, recommend. There, <laughs> which Tom. one? Okay. Only, only if you, if you've got a, kind of a volatile bet. There. Which trade? Uh, which trade can but, I use for immediate alpha? Yeah. Well, look. I think you know if you were looking in Latin America, I'd much prefer the idea that you'd go to the Brazilian real mm-hmm. because that's you know it's more stable. It's it's got decent yield, and I think you're going to earn your carry uh, on on. So on the a real. long Brazilian real versus U.S. dollar. Yeah, and and the yen. I'd okay. Say, yeah. Colin of the Twins, put that trade in, please. If if we lose money on it, take it out of Haley Koufax's uh, paycheck. Dodgers, Cubs, Cubs, three to two over the Dodgers. Alan Ruskin, thank you so much for wisdom across assets and particularly on foreign exchange. He is with Deutsche Bank. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg. Dennis Gartman <clears throat> tried to buy Kansas City wheat in the depths of the uh, crash of 1987. Honored that he would join us uh, this morning. Uh, Dennis, I, I, I think within your beautiful essay, we can go to when the shift occurred. For me, it was about 2 p.m., maybe 1.30 in the afternoon, where we took out paper tickets and started buying those of us courageous enough to know the underlying economics. And we didn't know for four four days if our trades were filled. What did you do at 2 p.m. Oh. on the day of the crash? Threw up. Yeah. I, <laughs> A lot of people I were doing up. that. Yeah. It was, an, it was an incredible day. And as I was trying to explain this morning in my commentary, 
I knew what was going to happen on Friday afternoon. I was with some friends from North Carolina State. We were going to a football game, and we were we checked in on our phone because our phone started ringing. The Dow was down a hundred on Friday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, before the crash, and people don't think much about 100 points now, but then that was the first time the Dow had ever fallen by 100, and I was worried about what was going to happen Monday with what we now know became the problem with portfolio insurance because you knew that there were going to be a huge amount of sell orders coming in. What was I doing Tuesday or Monday afternoon? Like I said, I was throwing up. It was an incredible experience, one I shall never forget, and one that's still here 30 years later colors how I think about everything, because I'm always worried that we may have yet another one of those again. I strongly agree with that. But to carry forward here down 26%, 18% is a bear market, 10% is a correction, or with the structure of our economy and finance today, uh, uh, Dennis Gartman, do you have to put a new number on a bear market? If it's not 26%, if it's not 18%, what's a bear market in 2018? Oh, I think actually that we give it much too much leeway saying that you have to be down 20% before you constitute it as a bear market. You can actually have a bear market started much earlier than that if you have, one, failed to go to new highs, two, take out a previous low. You could have the start of a bear market if you were only down 5%. It's just a matter of how much farther down you can go once down gets started. But uh, What's account, what, what constitutes today? I guess I'll still go with the 20% and say when we're down 20%, the public will have become concerned that prices may go down further. I want to go back to something you just said, which is it, it really shaped the, the way that you think about the markets and think about uh, investing. How did it change yeah. your sense of, uh, of the irrationality of markets? I, uh, prior to that time, I was a believer that markets were rational. Until that time, I actually did believe that markets probably could remain rational. After that time, I understood that irrationality can break out at almost any one period of time. And in the words of my my good friend Gary Schilling, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And my corollary to that is the market will return to rationality the moment you have been rendered insolvent. Let's talk a bit about the the stock market here. We've been mentioning this throughout the show that we hit 23,000 on the Dow yesterday. You're right this morning. Prices may be egregiously, preposterously, dangerously, unimaginably overextended to the upside, but they may become even more preposterously, even more dangerously, even more unimaginably overextended to the upside before they turn uh, lower. How do you react to the highs that we're seeing, Dennis? When they start bringing out the hats for the Dow 20,000, Dow 21,000, Dow 22,000, Dow 23,000, you almost become, It's as you just did, it's almost laughable. The, the market is ridiculously overpriced. It has been for several weeks. It has been for several months. Um, perhaps today, perhaps yesterday was the high. Who knows? Only time shall tell. But it does look a little precarious this morning. I guess uh, some of the weakness can be attributed to the problems of extent in Spain and Catalonia. But here, here, nonetheless, we're down and we're not bouncing today, and that is that alone is is disconcerting. Yeah. Do I think that the market can make new highs? No, I really don't. Um, but is it possible? Yeah. It's possible, but I don't think it shall. Dennis Garman, I spoke to uh, Cohen Resnick this week and went through the usual litany of optimism and some of the things pushing against it. And one thing I mentioned that I'm looking out into 2018 is. On the edge of Jack Welch, the idea of we lose pricing power. And I'm frankly, folks, seeing this in more areas where at the revenue line, you've got unit dynamics and price dynamics, and there's something in the wind. There's something changed. Do you agree with that? Uh, it's, 
it, it feels like that this morning. Suddenly, out of nowhere, has come rather rather egregious price weakness. Today could be a very important day. Let's be blunt. If you don't rally, and in the past we've had these mornings where the Dow was down 100, where the S&P was down 15, where the NASDAQ was down 40 or 50, and by 10.30 or 11 o'clock we were staging a rally and heading for new highs. Mm. If it doesn't do that today, the game has changed. Are you willing to put money on that? I mean, the great acclaim of Dennis Gartman is he actually shows his trades in the back. I believe, Dennis, in your morning note, there's no equity trades. It's the usual gold malarkey and you and your commodity (laughs) fixation and bet on North Carolina football. Are you going to institute an equity trade? we got to get out in front of this and make news at Bloomberg Surveillance. Well, actually, late yesterday afternoon, I'll try things on my own before I'll put them in the newsletter just to test the water. And I bought a few puts yesterday afternoon, not many, just a few. I, I, I gave an order to, my, to the young man who works for me back home. I'm, not, I'm in Akron this morning for an endowment committee meeting. Uh, but I gave him a note saying, if we don't rally, buy, buy some more puts. If we are still down by the end of the day, I'll probably officially come out tomorrow and say, let's buy some puts. Do you place your orders through Mack Truck Spread and whatever the name is? I mean, do you get taken on put options like the rest of us? No, no, not really. I mean, there's, there's the, the, the liquidity in the puts is really quite magnificent. So, mm. you know, I don't trade large, 20 and 30 and 40 lots at a time. I don't trade 1,000 lots. But for 20 and 30 and 40, you can get a good price within a penny or two yeah. of what you saw last on the screen. And for me, that's, that's close yeah. enough. Yeah, David, David, Doug Cass just fell off his chair in Florida. <laughs> he knows Gartman's starting order is 5,000. Oh. <laughs> that's his odd lot. Spurious, spurious allegations. Dennis, I love the, uh, I love the occasional esoteric in your, your letter. And, and this morning, you write about the importance of the Kiwi dollar. Why are you watching the Kiwi dollar this morning? Because something strange has happened there politically. Uh, New Zealand has been governed by a reasonably adroit center-right nationalist party, as they're called. They've done a very nice job. But uh, suddenly the the Labor Party, which is far left, the young lady has taken the reins of the Labor Party, uh, got within about 5% of the nationals, and a very strange fellow, uh, Winston Peters, who is uh, a trade protectionist of the first to order, and and I think a very dangerous fellow, got about 14% of the vote, and he cast his lot with the left. Suddenly you now have a very far-left trade protectionist government in New Zealand, which is archly archly changed, and the New Zealand dollar got clobbered on that. That I find to be very dangerous, because New Zealand has been a very solid, stable country, Suddenly it looks unstable. That I find disconcerting. So to sum this up, your strong U.S. dollar, weak New Zealand dollar? Yeah, you should be. This is a change. This is a very material change okay. in, in, in governance in New Zealand and in the past, as I said. Right. New Zealand has always been the, uh, an interesting place. They were the first place that really aggressively cut tax revenues to prove <clears> that you could cut, revenue, yeah. cut, tax, cut tax rates and take in more revenues. Yeah, they've, they've been a, a an, ex, an experimental point, and when New Zealand changes, I pay attention. Well, good morning to Julian Robertson. Hope you're listening. I'll let Mr. Robertson figure out what to do with uh, Kiwi. David Gurr, a massive surveillance correction. I was suggesting that someone on our Bloomberg surveillance team was from New Zealand. Um, I don't, <laughs> don't really. I don't again. get. I don't anything under the southern hemisphere. I don't get, starting with the Philippines. But um, I would suggest that I 
greatly insulted Mr. Buchanan. Okay, so yes. I, I, well. don't, I don't know where he's from. Maybe one of those islands with penguins on it down there, but he's not from New Zealand. He's a man of the I, world. We don't know. Good morning, Christchurch. I'm sorry I made a mistake. Oh, you're apologizing to them for making yes, it. Very I, good. All right. I, Sorry. Why don't you bring in Dennis Mr. Gartman Gartman. with us here, uh, editor and publisher of the Gartman Letter for another block. And um, Dennis, we got to talk about commodities uh, some here. Yeah. The last time you were on, we've just been through the, the third of these three hurricanes that we've experienced over these yeah. last many months. What's the fallout <laughs> been as you look at cotton, as you look at oil, as you look at other commodities? How much of an impact did those three storms have uh, on uh, on the complex? Nothing. None. Nothing. Nothing. It had absolutely nothing. It had impact upon refineries. It had impact upon... Uh, the crude oil production facilities for a while, but did it have any impact upon the corn market? No. Did it have any impact upon the soybean market? Marginally. Did it have any impact at all upon cotton for a day or two? And that certainly went away. So there's been absolutely no impact from the hurricanes. There was some concern several days ago that you might get an early frost out on the high plains of Texas and in some of the parts of the Midwest, and it might delay the harvest of corn and soybeans, but even that has gone the, the way of all flesh. So the, the impact has been marginal at best and almost non-existent. Uh, we were talking about the Kiwi dollars, mentioning esoteric a moment ago. You write about Egypt in this morning's yeah. letter. This is fascinating to me uh, yeah. as well on the subject of wheat. Uh, it, e- yeah. Egypt had been a huge market here and, and no longer is. What are we seeing there and what does that mean for the, the global market? Well, what's interesting is people don't realize. I mean, first of all, wheat production in the world is still the largest employer of any business in the world. Uh, it's, it's an interesting statistic. Wheat is the, the most important food in the world. And in the past, for many, many years, Egypt, was, Egypt has always been the world's largest net importer on a national basis of wheat, and they were our best client for many years. They have ceased to be. They yes. actually last year were the number 37 buyer of, of, of wheat from the United States. They didn't take any until in May of this year, which is unusual. And we have lost that market to the Russians, to the Romanians, to the Bulgarians, to the Black Sea states generally to Australia, to Canada. Perhaps it's the, the response of a stronger U.S. dollar in some instances, but even that's not uh, to be considered true any longer because the dollar hasn't been that strong. It's just interesting that we have lost the, the biggest buyer on a consistent basis, and it may be a while before we get them back. And what's in, even more interesting, we used to have a buying station there, the U.S. Wheat Associates, and they've actually closed their office, which might well be a sign of the fact that the worst is behind us. How are you watching these uh, these negotiations with Canada and Mexico unfold? Uh, I wonder the degree to which that's weighing on commodities at this point, that the prospect of the U.S. pulling out of the North American Free Trade Agreement changes to that uh, deal at the very least. Uh, what does that mean for, for American commodities? Well, I, first of all, I think that the idea of pulling out of NAFTA would be one of the silliest ideas imaginable. All three countries, Canada, the United States, and Mexico, have all been well-served on balance and in general terms by the NAFTA. Now, have there been some industries in the United States where jobs have been lost? Of course. And those always get the headlines. Perhaps some in the, in the auto industry yeah. have been that way. But on balance, it's been good for all three countries. And to think that it's, and, and, and the press always goes to the businesses that have lost jobs. Mm-hmm. They never go to the businesses that have quietly picked up jobs. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that doing away with NAFTA would be an ill-advised decision but it has it, it speaks well to the president's political base, and they yeah. want to see it done done away with. I think that would be a very very bad decision. Do you, Do you have your sugar bowl tickets yet? 
I, I mean, it's usually we're making <laughs> jokes, but six I mean, and one, you've right? got, I think you've got say six and one. North Carolina State folks has a bye, and then they have Notre Dame and a school named Clemson. Am I pronouncing it correctly, David? <laughs> they, you, got, you are indeed. You've got these two huge or, or, games or, or coming or up. Some, after after Clemson's loss, some of the some people are calling them Clemson. Uh oh. Have uh -oh. you written a check for a million dollars to the school or something to make this happen? Or <laughs> how did this miracle happen of six and one NC State, four and zero oh, ACC? I don't, know, but, I don't know, but I believe in miracles. And listen, you know, thank goodness it's happened this year. I was getting despondent after years of being a, a, a doormat. For the first time in a long while, we actually look good. Well, let's leave it there, Dennis Gartman. Thank you so much. Dennis, honored to have you on Great to have with, you. Uh, with us this October 19th. Uh, a really an historic, and as John Nigerian mentioned out on Twitter, a really emotional day for the people that actually uh, lived through it. Thanks for that note, John. David Gore, I want you to bring in our next guest, but I want to say this clearly. What you usually do in geography is start with a map, but it may be a USGS map, it may be this map or that map. But what we know is within the study of geography, all good work comes out of Scandinavia. I really don't know why it is, but the Danes, the Swedes, the Norwegians, but particularly Denmark, 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 owns the high ground on the global study of human geography and the economics of geography. And I'm thrilled that our next guest carries that tradition forward. There you go. Sadia Madsberg joins us now. She's a managing director at the Rockefeller Foundation, former senior vice president for strategic planning at the New York City Economic Development Corporation. And what caught our eye is a piece that she co-authored for the Rockefeller Foundation, also published on the Huffington Post, Fighting Wildfire with Finance. As we continue to watch the fires raging in wine country in California, she joins us on our phone line. Sadia, I looked at the San Francisco Chronicle this morning. That newspaper has done incredible coverage of these fires and made that coverage available for free to people who go to the paper's website. And the editorial this morning begins, for years now, the U.S. Forest Service has been forced to pilfer firefighting funds from accounts for fire prevention as more and more lands across the West burn. And this gets to the heart of what you're writing about and, and what the Rockefeller Foundation uh, is doing. How big a problem is this, the gamesmanship involving funds for fighting and preventing fires? So thank you for having me on the show, David. It is a really serious problem. If you look at the development of the U.S. Forest Service budget historically, uh, prevention um, used to be, you know, the biggest chunk of the budget. And, and by prevention, it's basically going in and maintaining the health of our forests, you know, taking away dead trees, um, doing controlled burns, you know, things that keep the forest healthy and, and preventing it from overgrown. Um, if you look at the budget today, it accounts for roughly 55% of the spend, uh, not because the U.S. Forest Service doesn't think that it's important to do prevention anymore, but they're just so much under pressure because of the fires that keep recurring year after year and get, you know, more and more out of control. So they, you know, what used to be 15% of the budget is now 55%. So as the, 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 the uh, wrangling over the budget goes on in Washington, D.C., uh, you're proposing a, a new way of, of paying for prevention. Tell us a bit about uh, the financial instrument that you've, uh, you've written about in your piece and, and how that might uh, effectively or more effectively prevent the kind of fires that we're seeing in California today. 
So the situation that we're facing or the U.S. Forest Service is facing is that there's a backlog when it comes to prevention that runs in the tens of billions. So regardless of what ends up happening with, you know, next year's budget, that doesn't solve the problem. The problem remains. You know, there may be a slight budget cut or you may, the budget may remain the same, but that doesn't take away from the fact that there's not enough money to go in and restore the forest so that we don't keep reading about wildfire situations in Northern California and the great devastation that they're causing year after year after year. The idea that we have been funding um, a company called Blue Forest Conservation to look at is how can you bring capital markets to bear? How can you take finance and use it as a powerful tool for good? So in a situation where the public sector doesn't have the money um, or not putting up the money to do this and philanthropy doesn't have money in the tens of billions of dollars to put against this problem, can we create a regular financial product that would be attractive to private investors so money can be raised, and in this case, it's a debt product that would be issued as a bond. Well, the money from those proceeds used to do the forest restoration work, and, and, and the private investors would get repaid over time as they would with any other financial product. Are, are the incentives from insurance adapting and adjusting like they have for hurricanes? Are, are the tragedy of California, will that be amended in the next 5 to 20 years by insurance companies that say, we're not going to insure this risk? So I think many things need to happen in in parallel, Tom. I I don't think that it'll just be the pressure from the insurance companies, because that would just leave us in a situation where somebody still has to put up the money. And if the public sector doesn't have the money, then where do we turn? Um, So yes, that could help with the situation, but that alone wouldn't solve the problem. I also think, I mean, I was looking at some, some numbers yesterday, and when we look at the devastation, you know, it's, it's terrible to read about the fatalities and, and the people that are still missing, but the economic losses are estimated to be somewhere between three to six billion currently for Northern California and growing. Um, and, and, you know, it's also worsening the state's housing supply crunch. Um, there's an estimate that the housing stock well, is going to drop by roughly 3%. So those are deeply yeah. problematic issues. And yes, the pressure from the insurance companies, if they refuse to insure, would, would you know, okay. force us to address it, but, but more is needed. How do you respond as a grizzled McKinsey pro, now at the Rockefeller Foundation, to the cynic who says, look, we're building the houses where the mountain lions used to be. What a surprise. Mountain lions are eating our dogs. Are we building houses in, a, in fire risk areas that we shouldn't be building? So we've been doing that for decades now, Tom. Um, and, and that's just the reality we find ourselves in. We have built houses and structures closer yeah. and closer to nature, um, and we have not spent money in taking care of the forest. So we've left a lot of fuel in those forests, which means when natural fires occur, they turn into um, wildfires. And, you know, we can't be in a situation where we sit and hope that there's going to be rain or that the winds are not going to pick up so that the situation can come under control. We need to be more active. And, and, you know, the public sector doesn't have the budget. Let's look to the private markets. How will that private market incentivize uh, innovation or evolution in the way that we fight fires like these? So the U.S. Forest Service, if you look at the public sector, they, they recognize that investing in prevention is the right thing to do. I mean, you can look a lot at the numbers and and the case adds up. It costs 40 times more to put out a fire than it costs to prevent it. 
So, you know, the, the numbers are there. There's research that has been done on cost avoidance where the U.S. Forest Service has worked with some of the NGOs in the space, the Sierra Nevada Conservancy and the Nature Conservancy. So they recognize it. The, the challenge is how do you then take it from that and, and turn it into something that's real and starts to have an effect. It won't solve the problem in a year. It's going to take years of work to do it, do it right, under the governance of the U.S. Forest Service. Um, But then we'll get to a better place where we don't see the situations that we've been reading about this year and last year as well. Sadi, thank you very much. Appreciate the time today. That's Sadi Modsberg. She is a uh, managing director of the Rockefeller Foundation, as Tom mentioned, a McKinsey uh, alumna, former senior vice president for strategic planning at the New York City Economic Development Corporation and uh, the bond that she was talking about there, Forest Resilience Impact Bond. She joined us on our phone lines. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, You can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.